This is Marketing Trends, your number one source for exclusive interviews with chief marketing officers and executive marketing leaders in the Fortune 1000 and beyond. This is Jeremy Bergeron, and I interview, collaborate, and partner with world-class CMOs and marketing leaders across industries. Brightspot Content Management System enables marketers to launch in just 100 days. It efficiently manages marketing campaigns on mobile apps or updates investors on your corporate site, handling it all seamlessly. With over 100 plus different content types and templates, marketers can deliver a customized, relevant experience to your audience. Additionally, integrate your current marketing automations platform and SEO recommendations directly from your Brightspot content management system, simplifying tool management. Discover more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Marketing Trends. This is your host, Jeremy Bergeron. As always, incredibly honored to be in this seat where I get to sit across from the most expert, creative, brilliant marketing leaders in the freaking world. It's literally my job. I can't believe they pay me for this, and this is amazing. Now, I know if you're listening to this, you're likely sitting, you might be walking, you could be driving, but just slow down a little bit because who we have today is just a legend in the game of marketing and marketing leadership. Let me tell you about Morgan Norman. Morgan Norman is the CMO of Dialpad AI. He's much more than that. This guy is an expert, expert, brilliant marketer, a creative leader. He is a thought leader in this space of marketing and branding and capital G growth. He has led marketing for startups to scale ups from 10 million to IPO. He's helped companies scale over a billion in revenues. I should just full stop, drop the mic right there. This dude is epic. He's a CMO, he's an executive, he's helped companies do all kinds of amazing things. We're gonna extract as much wisdom as we can from this human being. Um, he's highly specialized, he's highly visual, raised by artists, a self-proclaimed dyslexic, an amazing human being that I've already gotten to connect with in the, pre, in the pre-convo. So Morgan, welcome to the show. I'm humbled by the intro, it's great to be here. I got excited about just hearing my own intro the way you pitched it. So I loved it. Let's get started. Let's do this. Let's do it. We can do a little traveling road show. I'll just be your hype guy, your intro guy, <laughs> and then I'll, I'll just hand you the mic. <laughs> that, I'm willing to do it. So look, I, I, as soon as I saw your name come across my desk, I, I, I full stop, I saw like, you have a lot of deep experience. And I want to touch on some of the things that caught my eye right away because you've worked at some epic brands. So I look at this like education of marketing and marketing leadership. And I just go back to the one that caught my eye was Microsoft back in 2013. You were in product marketing there. So it seems like you've got some product marketing chops there. Then you went on to Ziora. Then you went on to NetSuite and spent time at a senior VP there. And you kept going. Now you're at Dialpad for over two years. And Dialpad, if you don't know, is blowing up. Yeah. So actually, I'm a boomerang at Dialpad. So I've been involved in Dialpad for actually over five years now. Okay. Um, Okay. So it's been a great run. I think, you know, there's a lot of ways to talk about uh, my career in marketing. I think in a lot of ways, I got quite fortunate. Um, I picked some really good companies at the end and picked some duds at the beginning at the first part of my career. Um, 
But really what it all centered around was storytelling. And I think you nailed the background. Um, but what really I learned about marketing is how can you actually create some marketing materials where someone can tell the story without you in the room? And this is really my mantra across everything we do, whether it's starting in product marketing, whether it's demand gen, whether it's a specific keynote, could they pitch it right after they saw it? And my background was as a writer, raised by artists. I was I wanted to be a storyteller. And when I figured out this foundation, that's really when my marketing career really started to excel. And I think that's where the big opportunity is for CMOs still today. Amazing. So you said pick the right company. What's your process there? I mean, do you have an approach? Look, you've had some you've had some major wins. You said you've had some you took some L's as as yeah. as life can give us sometimes. Yeah. But what is your approach in picking the right company? Because you've done well there. Yes, it, it's a it's a really fantastic question. So one of my rules that I look at is I only look at companies that are growth companies that have a heavy PLG model and has proven that out. I think it reduces, you know, your CAC. I think it makes it easier and less pressure on the marketers for people to experience the product. And it also should go into ultimately a sales-led model. Um, I'm into branding and big stories and big markets. So I look at a category that I can completely disrupt. Um, and I want to see where that white space is. And I want to actually ask myself before I go in there, could I disrupt this category? And if I can't, I'm not even interested. Um, the other piece is, do they obviously have the platform for innovation? Is it really future-proof? That's another area we all look at. Obviously, Dialpad, it's an original Google team. They built things at scale like no one has in their, on the planet. Um, culture is a pretty easy one. Um, and how do you work with the founders and the CEO? Because you have to represent them. You have to represent their dreams. You have to represent their passion. Um, and another area which I do think is important that I see a lot of challenges with marketers is, can you touch and feel and use the product daily? I think it's very hard for marketers, and there's some badass ones that do like security marketing or you know infrastructure marketing. It's just not my thing. Um, I want to be able to use the product. I want to be able to communicate to the team about using the product. I want to talk to them about that experience. And then tier one funding is another uh, key factor that that I always look at. And you know that's something we should all check. So I, I typically ask like when you know when I when I talk to CMOs, I ask them like when did the dance with marketing start with you? But for you, mm. I want to ask about AI. Oh, okay. When did the dance with AI start with you? When did that just grab your attention? Now you're deep in the world with Dialpad AI. So I make up a story that like you've been you've been dabbling with AI for a while. But tell me how that like AI first got on your radar and and some of the interesting things you started doing there with it. Yeah. So I originally met, so Dalpat acquired a company called TalkIQ, which was uh, some folks out of Google um, and was a language model that, are, that basically got, you know, NLP and sentiment information around customer conversations. And quickly Dalpat acquired um, TalkIQ and built that into the foundation roughly about five, six years ago. Um, that actually wasn't what inspired me about this new world of AI. I think we all thought it was a big bet, but I don't think we realized how big, how fast it would accelerate in this last transition. The real pieces that happened to me on a personal side is I actually am a painter. I had to shift my studio during the pandemic and I started getting into AI art. It was really driven by first looking at a couple NFTs and I set up my own stuff on Google Collab. I started actually playing with different servers and I was, and I kept pushing the limits of it, what was possible and how you could train it on your own specific models. But then the next wave came when I started seeing all the writing tools come out. Um, you know, the Jaspers, the writer AIs of the world. 
And my first question was, is this, are they just basically just using open source models? Is this their own models? And I started playing with those and then started experimenting with it. On our end, uh, we could talk about that in a little bit is how we look at AI and where's the most valuable data. But I actually still play with it on the consumer side all the time. Love it on the art side, play with it on the writing side. It's, it's less than perfect, but it, it's an adventure every day is what I'd say. Yeah, I, I agree. There's so much utility I'm finding, and it seems like that is happening all the time. I am curious about like just in the role of CMO, right? Where does chat GPT fit into like your daily wheelhouse as a CMO? Are you using it? Yeah. To support any of the things you're doing, strategy, approach, writing, et cetera. Like, do you use it in the CMO suite? Like just in that role? Yeah. So the first wave, which was very impactful from a writing perspective and marketing was actually with Writer AI. Um, we'd actually, I'd heard about them. I tried some other tools and there were some reasons why we didn't go with them for security wise. And I gave it to my amazing content team. This woman, Grace Lau is the best writer in the world. And, um, we have large SEO teams. We produce a ton of content out there and we started experimenting with it. Could it give us the foundations? And overnight, um, the first initial waves, we weren't there, but then suddenly it just made this massive leap forward. And quickly we transformed a lot of the contractors. We were just basically using AI. So it was like half the contractor team was reduced because we were having these foundations. And that was a big moment in time. From a writing perspective, so uh, we've used a lot of other tools, obviously Bard, there's, you know, there's Bard, there's, you know, obviously a ChatGBT. And I would say everyone on the team's using it, but it took them a while to adopt that they should be kind of just having fun with it. Don't put a lot of mm. pressure. Just mm-hmm. experiment with it and just kind of get used to this in your tool set or arsenal. And I think now the team is, you know, plugged pretty far in, but teams are experimenting heavily with images. We're now getting into kind of data, you know, uh, uh, points of view. Um, writing is nonstop. I would say, you know, now we're looking actually about long form writing. But ultimately in the writing side, I would say is you need really strong editors. If you don't have really strong editors, I think you're just playing around. It's it's not going to be as useful as you think is my, really my gut. Yeah. What about the, you know, there's a lot of talk around, you know, language learning models and the controversy there. And I just mm-hmm. want to get kind of your perspective and opinion on that. There's a lot of schools of thought. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good one. And I think if, I don't know if you saw the news about Sarah Silverman's, you know, copyright issues where, you know, she's saying, you know, basically these LLMs scanned her books. They're using it for tonality. And it's a serious, serious case that could impact, uh, you know, consumer generational AI. Um, the challenge that we see, so we actually have, you know, we have over 6 billion, oh, roughly about 4 billion minutes will be about 6 billion minutes analyzed across human conversations. That's like almost like 8,000 man years. Wow. Um, so the challenge with the data perspective is how these queries are done in the processing power. So a lot of companies, they don't even have access to be able to give, you know, the processing power or the, or the calls for, for AI for any company. The APIs can't just, they can't even give you the limits and the queries, if you will. That's one piece. The other piece is general models will probably never be better than really specific industry models. And that's going to be the next wave. And they're actually probably more sustainable in, in, in long term because it's the, the, you don't need as much processing power. Their accuracy is going to be a lot higher. And the cost is going to be fractions, if not fractions of fractions versus really big LLMs. So the big question on that, the secondary question that everyone's really starting to ponder is, 
how are you handling this with your data set? And is your data set really an LLM, a, you know, large language model, or is it a specific, concise, you know, industry model or specific industry model that might be a better choice for your organization? Our model is an industry model, so we're clear. We do, mm. you know, sales, service, we do recruiting industries. Healthcare is a very different model than a general model. Um, and so there's about five core industries we do as well. Um, and there's a lot of advantages to that for us versus others. It's real time. It's faster versus an LLM. Couldn't even do this in real time in a conversation. What about the adoption? Uh, certainly in the categories that Dialpad is serving, but like just what yeah. are you seeing in terms of adoption and how are you influencing that and shifting that forward? So um, surprisingly, um, and this was shocking to us. So we sell, uh, you know, voice, video messaging, contact center and an AI sales product as well. That's like a coaching product. 96% of our AI contact centers have it turned on and are using it. That's, you know, that is unbelievable. Uh, when we looked at those results, we're like, wow. Um, and it could now, you know, will it ever get to a hundred? I don't know. Um, the big piece, the layer down from that is this next wave of all the feature adoption we're looking for in AI. There's a lot we've announced in terms of, you know, meeting summaries and recaps and action items and coaching, you know, can we get the adoption across all these features or add-ons in AI? And I think that's going to be an important strategy for every company. It's not that you just have AI and it's not that you just say there's adoption, but are they adopting the right features and all the development and innovation you're doing? So that's where we spend a lot of time right now. And a lot of it centers around marketing education. I mean, that's, it's a massive gap. I think no one is really clear what's real or what's not in this current market. Mm, okay. So then let's click in a dial pad a bit and just kind of thinking about the dial pads approach to marketing because dial pad operates yeah. in a it's a competitive market a lot of various players offering you know comms and co and collab solutions yep. so just touch on how are you approaching and differentiating because there's yeah. a lot of competitors a lot of different offerings so i'd love to hear your thoughts on that yeah and i'll speak in some generalities to kind of talk about how i think about brand and industry messaging so I do a lot of studies and a lot of visual studies about, you know, how brands look. I will basically constantly look at their ads and see similarities. Um, I'll look at, you know, I can basically vet a marketing team very quickly by looking at their web and I can see where they're strong. Are they strong at telling their story? Are they strong at showing the product? Are they strong at proving it out with a lot of customer metrics? Or are they strong in actions like a heavy PLG model, sales led, talk to an expert model? And then I can pretty much stack the weaknesses in the industry. I could say, okay, they're great at showing the product, but they're not good at really proving it's real. And then I just can figure out where I want to take a beachhead. The other piece, you know, how we market in Dialpad is we want to inspire people that there's a better way. Um, no different, you know, when, you know, the cellular players, how T-Mobile did versus AT&T Verizon. You, you shouldn't have to pay for data the way you used to. Uh, we believe there's a better way. If it's on, you know, a purpose-built cloud platform or built on Google Cloud from the very beginning, that reduces the cost for SMBs and for enterprises for scale. Uh, we focus on easy to use, try and buy. And we don't fake that. That's not a marketing statement. You could go on, you could turn it on for one user, you could turn it on for a thousand in a minute if you wanted to. You just got to, you know, figure out what that license count is. So that's a big differentiator. So usability and design is a factor for us. Um, the other thing is, you know, being part of this modern and part of this new modern wave. We we are a thought leader. We've been doing, you know, AI technically almost a decade, if you include Talk IQ's original um, points. But if, you know, for half a decade, it's been embedded in our platform. So we have a lot of expertise there. But the other piece is, you know, 
We're okay however you want to interact with us. A lot of companies, it's very sales focused. They're forcing you. They get the product. They don't adopt it. That's how desk phones were. That's how communications was. No one used it, but you, they bought all this equipment and no one uses any of the room equipment, whatever it is. We take a different approach. You can scale with us. You can start a different, every different size anywhere in the world. Um, but how I market that as a whole is it really comes down to a top line narrative, really kind of basically figuring out where the market's going to shift before it does. So we knew that the AI market was going to be super hot right around this time when we did a Super Bowl commercial. But it wasn't because we're geniuses. We were studying exactly where everyone was going to land, and we wanted to be first on that, and we were. And we have some other tactics we use, but it's all about curiosity. How do you watch your competitors, and how do you actually see that it's a sea of sameness? And we're always borrowing from other marketers, which we can talk about as well. Yeah. I love that. And I, I want to touch on this because you're you you're an artist. Like you have you have yeah. an eye for design. You you mentioned that you paint, you do things clearly an artist. Well, do you tap into that in working with some of the design and product side of things just because you have that bend, or do you kind of stay out of the design side of things? So let's get a little little weird here. Um so I was raised <laughs> by artists, so it might get a little bit weird sometimes. So um, you know, if you're creative and we all are, and we're all creative when we get dressed, we're all creative when we buy clothes, we're all creative with our cars and homes and everything. So I believe everyone's a creative, but that doesn't mean you're a designer. So I'm clear. But what creatives know and engineers know is like, if you're in a flow or if you're really present, the ideas, the messaging, the asset, what will come to you, it's not forced. When you're in a real thinking mind and marketing, like I've got to do this campaign to try to get this person to do this and do that, those generally never have the power to last. They can work, but they don't last. So it's really important as a marketer, when you're building campaigns, try to pull them to that present state, play a little music before meetings, get, you know, start to jam with them. And on design, you have to realize how you're coaching design teams. So I get heavily involved in design and I'm looking for a feeling. I'm going with a gut. And this is the great part of dyslexia is you can see how other people will perceive things. And they're like, how do you see it? You're like, okay, they're not going to look at this. They're going to see this. This is the vibe they're getting. And you can do it so fast that we work a little bit faster uh, mentally in those areas than others. So I believe, you know, always be on the creative side. I also like to involve the CEO and other really key constituents into it. And I want it to be part of them. I want it to be their story. I want them to shape it with me. So it's a collective and then, but I know where I want to take it. It's not that I'm not leading it the direction I want to go. And it's also a letting go and let designers be themselves, let things, you know, surface to the top. And then I feel when those things come together, it's absolute magic. And you can get that very easily if, if, you, if you can figure out ways of operating. And I think that's a massive gap with CMOs and branding. And you can see it when you look at their sites or work. You're like, that's eh, cool, but it doesn't really, doesn't, I don't feel anything looking at it. That's the tell. How do you foster collaboration with executives, like pulling them into things? Like, do you have an approach? Is it pretty organic? Do you have like a process you follow, a framework? How do you pull in these, these other ELT folks? So there's some execs that you have to kind of control the situation and you have to be very careful how you do that because generally C-suite executives don't want to be controlled. They want to be controlling and, and kind of right. commanding of what everything is. So the way I approach it from marketing is you want to plant some seeds like Inception, if anyone's seen that movie. Mm -hmm. You want to give them the idea early. You kind of want to pitch to them. You're going to let them say, oh, no, 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 maybe I don't really like that. 
and you're going to pitch it again at a different angle, you might actually show it in black and white so they don't react to the design. And then eventually you show some things in fidelity and you're throwing in a lot of ideas and then you disappear and you let them sit on it. What happens generally is they come back with a variant of that idea if they're really controlling. That's one approach we do. There's other approaches where, you know, some marketers overwhelm the C-suite. They basically go, here's all the different things. It's a Chinese menu. Mm -hmm. Which thing do you like? You know, you want this appetizers, this dish. And, and that's that actually works. And that's the CMO or the marketers trying to control the executives. And they don't really care. They're like, I'm good with any of this potpourri. Then the other area is you really allow yourself to be in a riffing session. So if you're in a founder-led company, I've been in a couple of these. Um, it's a very different situation because it's so personal to them and it represents them and it represents their identity. So in those scenarios, it's really important not always to have an agenda. Walk in agendaless. Mm. And if you walk in agendaless with a founder-led company, it's a really amazing time for a marketer. And then eventually they start to let go more. And you want to understand the pillars that are unmovable for them. There's some pillars where some people will say, never change the logo. That's the logo. There's some people who say, we're never changing the colors of the company. There's some that's saying, you know, I'm never like this type of branding. I always want it to be enterprises and stodgy. But you can always get them there over time. You just need to kind of come in and let it sit. But it's never in the timeline CMOs want, is my feeling. Yeah. How do you, that's the interesting part too, is like, look, you've been a part of, you know, these organizations and teams where, you know, velocity is important, right? There's right. companies are, they're about to IPO or they're about, you know, their, their acquisition, they're headed that way. You have to balance dancing in the in, with the speed and velocity, but also like there's, there's nuance and there's, there's, you know, there's different things you have to do to, to cultivate as things go. And yet there's still the scoreboard and where you have to head. How do Absolutely. you, how do you balance that? I have a different strategy now than I had originally as a CMO. Okay. At first, when I was a CMO, I'd come in and I had my playbook. And I think the playbook, it does work. I, you know, I have a heavy demand gen background and a growth background as well. What I've learned now is you've got to get quick wins on the board as fast as possible and focus on the foundation the minute you drop in there. And what are the growth and efficiency levers? And there always is a ton that, and there's always quick wins. It's great long-term and you got to go horizon one. What are you going to do? Whatever that period is, horizon two, what are you going to do? And don't think about anything else beyond that. What I try to do is get a couple quick wins on some metrics and that stabilizes the team. So that might be you're tweaking some, you know, more testing and demand gen. You're just recutting ads, you're recutting copy, anything to get the lead flow up or quality of lead flow for the sales team. It might be new sales decks and positioning or new assets that they're dying for. Uh, customer stories is other simple examples. All of those we all do are soup and bread for us. Once you get a couple of these wins and they start to see the metrics, the trust is established. Now, from there, you go to work on the real, the real items. Because you know you're going to have a foundation team that runs that stuff. It's, it's always going. You're always kind of iterating. But then you have to go for the big wins. And my approach on the big wins, and marketers might come in and say, I want to rebrand the company, or I want to rename the company, or I want to do a big brand new global site, or I want to add self-service to this. Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. Or, you know, build out a massive global event strategy. It does it pick, pick the one you want. But CMOs typically go to what their sweet spot is, what their major is. Every CMO typically has a major. And then that major changes over time. But I know that I know the next couple bets I'm going to make before I walk in the door. And I also have fallback plans. And that's I teach the teams that 
I make a couple big bets if that's saying like, okay, we're going to recut the web as fast as possible. And I'll try to recut the web in six weeks, the entire thing up and down. Wow, It'll be wow. a death project. But then everyone's like, oh, it's theirs. It's the team's. And you're now they're inspired. They can do whatever they want. And then you do the, you know, the more professional recuts, but you always have fallback plans. So let's say those fail. And let's say you didn't get your growth and efficiencies. You're now, now you're just scrambling and your leadership is just not stable. So I, I really think it's important to plan that way um, from my perspective. Can you share a little bit more about the fall, the potential fallback plans and what you kind of put in place? Yeah. And I'm very open with my management team now, um, and they know this. I didn't initially tell this to them. Um, so when I first come into a team, I won't tell them I have a fallback plan on most areas. But I also always will have multiple fallback plans. So if this you know, efficiency uh, piece doesn't work, maybe I'm betting on a whole digital event strategy. If this content takes longer time because the tech debt, um, I have ways I might do different things in PR. Everything is a supporting angle to the supporting team and trying to link them together. And at first, they don't know this because you don't want to say like, I'm not very confident this is going to work out. You want, them to, you want them to be themselves. You want to see where they really fit in. You, most marketers might not be in the right position for themselves. So if you say you have a fallback plan, you're like, you don't trust me. So then ultimately, then the management team was like enjoying creating their own fallback plans. And so everything is that way. Everything. And, it, and it's not always reliant on marketing. It doesn't mean that marketing's not succeeding. It just means there's other dependencies that the company might not have been able to get to. The product didn't push or the infrastructure is this way. It, it doesn't really matter. So it's really important to not take it personally. Um, and I operate that way across everything I do still today. Hmm. You mentioned this earlier, and, and this is you know this is one of one of my favorite favorite words. It's one of my also my super secret, not so secret powers, which is curiosity. So I want you to touch on curiosity, borrowing things, augmenting things, and how you've really built up a tool belt that's allowed you to scale some massive you know massive organizations to you know m massive zeros. Talk about how you dance with curiosity, borrowing things and augmenting them and making them yours. Yeah, well, we sh both share that um, dyslexia aspect of, you know, how we see the world. Yes, and, we do. and I think um, it is a superpower. I think that anyone that's out there who thinks it's going to limit you in your career, it's an absolute superpower. And what I would say is if you have a different way of seeing things, you're naturally curious. Um, and that's a lot of people aren't curious more towards because of fears or control, but if you can open up and just kind of be surprised and have that mindset, it gets a little bit easier. How I approach it is um, I'm constantly looking at new positioning, new angles, and I break everything down into a system that I call basis. And I train everyone on this. We've done it for years. It goes back to tell, see, prove, do. So if you're curious about how other people market, how they actually show the product, what do the schematics look like? What do the colors look like? And if you can start to process things in an order that's like atomic for you, you'll be able to, to quickly put that on the side and, and master it. The next curiosity, because we run growth, is constantly testing signups, mobile signups, global signups. I sign into VPNs overseas. What's the signup in a different language like? Hmm. Because that advances so fast and there's so many new tactics, not just on the signup, you can slam them in the product, but we have to run life cycle. And then there's the onboarding. And then there's the friendliness of how you're ghosting reps. So that's where I spend a lot of time. I probably like, you know, every week try about like two, three products and just, it just sits in a box and I just let it fire. 
And then I'm going back and I'm like, oh, that was interesting. And I'm forwarding. And I was like, that was interesting. And then I'm going to the lifecycle team saying, think about these triggers. I saw this. This is an advanced tactic. That's the main thing is I, you know, I stay on the edge of technology because I actually am fascinated by it. It's getting a little sloppy right now, again, with everything AI and a lot of fakeness out, fake news or whatever it's called out there. But um, I think if you can, as a marketer, really, you know, you can become a growth marketer by trying lots of products. You can. You might not know the science behind it. and You can get people with it. But I think it could really help your company succeed. And, and to the next level, I believe you can borrow anything. That's, you know, being raised by artists. That's what they teach you um, is that, you know, it's a world out there. Borrow from it. It's designed that way. And then you make it your own. That doesn't mean steal things where I know some people are into I think the biggest compliment, I see stuff ripped off that we do all the time. It's the biggest compliment in the world. So I'm all for it. You want to borrow something we did, go for it. I try to make it authentic where it's very hard to do that and replicate, but it happens. But I do think we learn from every CMO out there. And when I first wanted to be a marketer, I I remember seeing Mark Benioff on stage. I was like at the second or third Dreamforce. And I saw how he marketed, how he told a story. And believe it or not, I've never worked at Salesforce but he taught me how to market. And that's a really important thing that, you know, Mark and the people behind him, um, not that I know him, you know, they taught us all a new way of marketing. And that's the same way with a lot of these badass marketers you've hosted. You know, you're looking at Snowflake, you're looking at these tier ones and you're like, wow, how did they get that? How did they do that valuation? How did they really move sales in a way that like none of us have before? And, and respect that. And then also accept that that might be a weakness you have and you can't overcome it. So do you hire someone to help you overcome those things? Mm, love that. You talked earlier in the, in the prep and I want to, I want to click on this. As you said, anyone can be a CMO. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that, please. Yeah. So another story I didn't tell you is how I started in tech. I started as an SDR. Um, I started as an SDR and ended up running inside sales teams I ended up running, you know, sales operations, marketing operations, field marketing and demand early on. And that's where I got the knack for creating tools um, and sales decks is how it all started. I started creating the sales decks for the company. And because we're an inside sales teams, tools didn't work. The not nothing the marketing team ever gave us worked. So I was like, we can't succeed. So I just started creating all our own tools and then it started firing. But I didn't believe I could have been a CMO back then. I, I felt like I was kind of stuck in this kind of in-between land of, you know, inside sales, kind of demand gen, field marketing. And I found that was a massive mistake. And, you know, it just, it taught me a ton because I learned a lot about sales. What I would say to everyone out there is a CMO's job is not as hard as folks think. It is juggling priorities. Um, it is basically, like we said, having a serious curiosity understanding a foundation that will be a baseline for whatever your model is, what playbooks inspire you, where you're pulled to, what's your major as a CMO, and you're going to pick a new major. I was never a PR person originally, but teen at Zora, he turned me into one. He turned me in where he, we were going to build a category. And then suddenly I majored in PR and then I got that dialed. Now I'm majoring in new things. So I think that the pieces and now with AI is, you know, some CMOs like peanut bread themselves, some are like product marketers, you know, some are, you know, front people where they're actually telling the story of the company. Some are event specialists or pod specialists, if you will. I think pick your major, 
pick a company that inspires you, pick a story that inspires you, learn how to build decks very effectively and pitch. If you're a CMO, you're your own agency. You have to be a pitch person. You need to be able to pitch any idea at any time at a moment's notice. You need to be able to pitch a launch and build a deck overnight that people are like, wow, they want to grab that idea. If you can work on that and simplifying things, uh, I think anyone can tackle it. And Demandgen's easy. It's a playbook now. I mean, a lot of these things are like, you know, you just hire people that that's what they do for a living and you focus on what you love and then you go after it. So if you want to be a CMO, start early. You might pick some duds like me. Don't be afraid of it. And you're going to learn a ton, even if you fail. Hmm. You, you mentioned agency and I'm curious just about that. Uh, I find CMOs have interesting perspectives in terms of some like to have agency support. Some like to have most marketers in-house. Yeah. What's the balance there? And just I'd love to hear your experience on both managing agencies and kind of leading that. And then also kind of the balance of in-house folks and those folks. I think as you get bigger, you start to bring in more agencies, but I have a very different philosophy how I've worked. A lot of the folks have worked with me. We've worked about three to five companies together. Um, one of my main leads who's you know almost second in command is JP Walty. He's one of the best brand people on the planet. And we operate together and we train people up specifically. We try to bring them to the skill set the way we operate. And then we kind of keep building this internal agency that goes where we go. I do think agencies have a definite place, but a lot of the stuff is concept. And if you're in a high growth company and you're trying to, you have a four handle or above on your growth, you can't deal with concepts too much. Mm. You have to deal with stuff that you can deploy quickly. You can test quickly. However, for big moves, big launches, you've got to bring in folks that it's not going to burn your team, whether that's running, you know, your whatever your customer conference is, whether that's actually producing a very specific broadcast video, you have to bring in agencies, but you might want to be where you're actually almost embedded in the agency where you do the work with them, or you might be someone who kind of lets go of the agency. And I don't think that works very well. I also feel agencies are only as good as you. So everyone says, oh, I got bad work as the agency. Well, you did bad work and it's fine. It happens to all of us. The reality is you just got lazy and weren't paying attention to it. It's, it's, you had other priorities. It happens. So I think, you know, an agency, they kind of flame out sometimes I see like they're good for the first couple of years, then they flame out. It's really important that they understand if their work's being activated or not. And, and what are the results are? Because I think agencies don't even understand how some businesses run. Um, so I'm a fan uh, I've built a network of an amazing creatives, but I really believe you in today's world, if you're a, a company with a, you know, 40% growth or above, you have to have your own internal agency. I just think have your own designers. They operate with you. You can ping them at night and they understand how you see the world and how the C-suite sees the world and how to service them. So with like demand gen specifically, you think build that in-house, build demand gen in-house. When you get to a certain stage, I think there's some good agencies that will get you like if you know you're below 50 million. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely. There's some ad agencies that could come in there and they're low cost. They might have people overseas. Right. But ultimately, you're going to burn up a lot of money if you stick with that. Okay. And you could use those funds for other things. So I believe that ultimately you should bring it in-house. Use expertise where you can. Consulting, if you have to cut over and do a giant website production and coding, that's logical. But just be aware, agents aren't agencies aren't as conscious of your money. And, and you know, marketing budgets are there's a lot of oversight on these, these days. Um, and it's, 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 you know, you're asked to do more with less and get 50% more efficient every year. 
Yeah, that's a great that's a great segue because we talked about that. Look, demand going up, resources going down. Hey, you got to do more with less. I mean, we talked about that a lot last year heading into the kind of economic headwinds across all these industries. What's your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Every marketer who's listening to your talks is doing more with less. I've, <laughs> I hear a lot of CMOs say, you know, we prioritize in this. I don't buy it for a single word. There's marketers are unable to prioritize and stick to plans in a high growth market. Your plans can be disrupted in a month. If you're in the AI market, a week is a month right now. Right. And so always have that flexibility and always be able to let go of things. Um, and, And it's okay because we're in the service to say, okay, this is a lawn fire. This is a house fire. This is a forest fire. And let's go solve the forest fire problems. I do believe that AI is going to help marketers do more with less. I do. I just think we're not there yet in some areas from a marketing tool perspective. What I mean by that is, is it going to create my demand gen ads? No. Designers are still going to do it, tweak it, you know, drop it into Figma or whatever they might do. Writing, you still need some, you know, some badass, you know, writers like we have on our team or editors. But uh, marketers are constrained. I think now that we're back to profitability, that puts even more strain on us. Um, and I believe that most companies, this is my biased belief is people should go all in on growth right now if we're, you're an AI company. You can't do that. I'm not a VC. I don't, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a banker, but that's how I see it. It's like, go for it. Take the market. Hmm. So, so scaling a company, as you know, very, very well, scaling a company requires a strategic approach to marketing. I'm curious if you can share some kind of specific marketing initiatives or campaigns that have been pivotal in driving Dialpad's growth and expansion into new markets. Yeah, so we can start. I came to Dialpad originally at, um, you know, we're I think we're four million. We're a meetings company, and that's you know that was their concept. Is they they wanted to, they started Google Voice and they wanted to build a business system for all business communications, and then it turned into this AI company and gets all its information from communications data. So the biggest bet we did, the we launched uh, our voice product at the time. And we did a very controversial campaign and controversy matters. And we put a campaign that was kill the desk phone. And we just did one billboard by the airport and no one wanted to do it. We literally had an executive from a Fortune 50 company said, you can't put kill in in an ad campaign. (laughs) And it created such a buzz because of the controversy of it. And no one wanted desk phones. You know, and we were creating work from anywhere back then. This is this has been years ago. Um, so that was a big wave. So one is testing at a home, making that a foundation for creating brand. Other companies really do this quite well. Uh, but for a company who's never done that before, that really propelled us very quickly. The other piece is having very concise pillar-based messaging and going through those workshops very early on. If you're sub 5 million, bring in all the teams, do the workshops together, make sure they're all represented, make sure they can tell the story and come back with that output. Biggest bets I always make too is I think, you know, content is everything, right? Mm. You know, be a thought leader, start driving content, you know, really focus on organic, um, really focus on how that's going to translate into your global web. That's going to get the POV out there. And and then you're going to author between other folks. You know, HubSpot was the original beast at this. So that's a massive uh, foundation to kind of get through that first initial, we're going to get to like 10 to to 20 million uh, in revenue. Ultimately, I think it kind of shifts in a little bit more into sales-led this next phase. 
Um, a lot of that is event-based and pod-based models, how you're support, supporting specific regions, how you're helping them drive pipeline, you know, and ultimately sales, SDR, channel, whatever it is. But how are you booting up a region for them? So events is one part, but do you have a different budget for a specific region over another that might be lacking? Like the Southern region is always struggling for some reason in most companies. Hmm. Um, and do you have a different budget to allocate to that, do a different set of events? Um, digital events obviously are still really big at the executive level, and it's going to get you that database uh, uh, lead flow, if you will. I typically find around 50 million to 100. I, between my feeling is that's the death sprint. That is the death zone, I, I feel. That's my experience. The reason why I feel that is because you can deal with massive churn that you can't control in the products. Um, and I experienced this at one company. We were supposed to go public this many years ago, and the churn just went through the roof overnight. And we were just in a complete panic. But you're also in a panic to acquire the revenue. So you're trying to stabilize the base and you're trying to grow the revenue and you're trying to keep the reputation. So in that, I really start to focus on that piece. So that's that reputation at the customer level. You're marketing with customers that will really get behind you. And, you know, will they go all the way out there on stage? Will they be in ads? Will they, you know, you know, do every different webinar for you? But I typically have gotten stuck there I think I've gotten stuck there like three times, way longer than I had. And then above 100 to 200, I actually think, you know, it's not that hard. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just growth and efficiency levers, not pretending that they're all going to work and just literally just tweaking, tweaking, tweaking there. And then I know, that, you know, mine is, can you disrupt the category? Can you pull yourself out of the category? So for us at Dialpad, one of my main objectives coming back was, the industry is the industry you mentioned is crowded. I was like, I don't really care about them. I'm in the AI world. And I was pulling us out. Of, we didn't get into this. We were pulling out of it the whole time. And luckily, we left everyone behind. So we're in a different world now, right? And that's what I would recommend all marketers do is if you're in that, that tranche, you know, you have to be efficient with your dollars. You have to have your data dialed. You have to support sales who's never going to be satisfied. And then, you know, you're moving on to, to the next wave. And then once you get past three, three to six, it's, it's pretty easy. And then six to a billion, it's just rinse and repeat. It feels like to me. Hmm. Let's touch on international here for a second mm. and we can wrap. I know Dialpad has expanded globally, yeah. serving customers in all kinds of regions. So yeah. how does the marketing team navigate cultural nuances and kind of tailor marketing efforts to, to resonate with diverse international audiences? Yeah. I would say I'm not the best here. I'd love to be better is what I mean. We, we are in 140 countries. Um, we actually have, uh, you know, teams in Europe. We have a, a larger faction in Japan and, and ANZ. We have a, a team and as well as our uh, employees are also based in Latin America. We have, you know, India, you know, Philippines, you know, all over Europe, if you will. Uh, it is a struggle. Um, I think corporate, because we're stateside, we can be a little dismissive of the requests and what they deal with. With PLG, it's very different. The billing is very different. The experience is different. The translations, you can use a lot of agencies. They like make a lot of mistakes. You got to get more professional as you scale. Um, help center articles, videos. The way a lot of US marketing companies, it's a little dismissive. Like, we're just going to do it in English for you. Um, so you have to figure out the way I like to look at it is I just go tier one countries, tier two, rest of the world. And can I shore up the tier ones? And then can I mimic that playbook into the tier twos when I'm ready? Um, obviously, tier ones are typically Germanic languages uh, for most companies, but our tier one was Japan. Very few people are in Japan. 
And then from a cultural perspective, working with the marketers, I would say that's always a struggle. Um, you know, marketers overseas linking with stateside marketers, if they haven't been there, there's always a big disconnect of what they need. And I feel like they're last on the list to get service sometimes. So you're reminding teams like, you've got to attend this EMEA call. You've got to deliver mm-hmm. what they need here. Content, that's great. It's got to be translated on this area. When you're doing the web, you can't just deploy that. Are you using SmartLink or other translations to deploy it there? When is it deployed? Communicate that. Those are the events, same thing. Like you might do a roadshow here. Is there a roadshow in the UK? Is there a roadshow in France? Um, I could always be better there. Um, and I think it's a big a big push for, for most CMOs. Some are great at it, but it's resource-based. If you have all the resources, it's pretty easy. Yeah. But if you're lean, it's tough. It's tough. Got it. Awesome. Well, thank you. Last question, Morgan. What are you most excited about? Just mm. like thinking about the future of business and marketing, like what are you excited about as like as a CMO? And what's on deck for you personally? What are you pumped about in the future? I think this is, I and I really mean this and I I, you know, I hope others feel this way. I think this is the most exciting unknown time I've ever seen in my lifetime. And, you know, you know, I'm not on the VC side seeing all the craziness and deals, but it's, it's like a blue flame that we all kind of dreamed of. And it's accelerating at a pace that's going to be transformational for humanity. And that's what we all want. We all want to be part of change, whatever that is. I'm really excited how it's going to change the global boundaries and borders and, you know, we're a big remote company um, and how it's going to empower that kind of language disparity. Um, I'm really excited also, too, on the education side. I, it, you know, I, I've seen some things that are just like, you know, imagine some of these high needs youth, which, which I was as a kid. Um, I actually was that child that, you know, didn't have a tutor and then needed one and, you know, got it luckily through other means that have access to this. It's just it's, it's just tear jerking to me. Um, I also think what I'd say to CMOs is it's really up to us. You know, we are the foundation to get these things in market. And I don't mean to put the pressure on all of us, but like tell badass stories and I'm seeing it. There's just some cool stuff out there and inspire others, like be your best self, tell a story. If you're on the AI front, one caution I would say is try to keep it real. It's there's so much stuff out there that's not real. Just keep it real. And what I'm most excited about on my end, uh, ultimately, personally, I'm really excited about AI art and how it's going to transition back to physical, you know, really large scale print. I think that it's not something to be underestimated, someone who comes from a family of artists, um, but it's something to be understood and it's something that will allow others to create. I'm also excited about allowing others to design that always wanted to be designers and they learn a design eye. I, I couldn't be, this is just a perfect time to be in tech. And if you're not in tech, you know, I, it's time to, it's time to go. Let's, let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Morgan, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. You are, it's incredible to just get a little glimpse into your perspective and, and just experience on marketing leadership and just how you view the world. I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I think we are, the, the sky's the limit truly. And so thank you for being on Marketing Trends. This was epic. Thanks, Jeremy. It's, it was great. I loved it.